0: Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Khadji, and today we're thrilled to bring you my recent talk with one of the early trailblazers of the emerging manager community, and Jeff Clavier of Uncork Capital. Jeff was one of the first people to start investing full-time in seed all the way back in 2004, and well before the micro VC moniker was even conceived. Today, the firm has over $500 million in AUM and has invested in such companies as Poshmark, Fitbit, Eventbrite, and Molecule. This was a really fun conversation as we took a trip down memory lane to talk about the early days of seed financing, how he raised a fund during one of the toughest times in US macroeconomic history, the challenges and opportunities he saw as he built a long-term firm, and some of the trends he thinks we'll see in venture over the coming years. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. I'm absolutely thrilled to have this week's show sponsored by Frank Rimmerman, who serve as home for over 500 VC firms for their tax and audit needs. They're also one of the largest providers of services for the emerging managers community. And as somebody that's worked with them for over 10 years, I can attest to the early commitment they made to MicroVC when it was first getting started. If you're a venture firm in the market for audit and tax, be sure to give them a call. Hey, Jeff, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Samir. How you doing? I'm doing great. You're into the pandemic and uh, I'm actually really uh, excited to have this conversation with you. You're one of the definite first generation seed VCs. I remember when you first started, most people didn't even know what seed financing was, let alone what a micro VC or even a super angel was. But let's go back. Let's go back to 2004. You started Angel Investing full-time. What inspired that start of going into investing and doing it full-time? What did you see? So
1: after being an entrepreneur and uh, a VC for, traditional VC for four years, in 2003, 2004, I saw the emergence of what was then called Web 2.0. So the next generation of uh, internet services, mostly consumer startups. And they were very capital efficient. They just needed a few hundred thousand dollars. And all these people were telling me, well, I just don't want to raise from VCs because they want me to take a multi million dollar check and I don't need that. And so I just saw that there was a, a gap, if you want, in the financing market at the time where no one was really sort of investing. And I decided to you know, go to my wife and ask whether I could take 250k or own savings to start investing as a full-time angel, because I thought there was an opportunity.
0: And so you started doing that in 2004. I think your first investment was what, Trivio? Yep. Yeah, which uh, exited, I think, less than a year after you did it in a nice multiple. But at which point did you decide, hey, you know, this is working, I want to actually do this full-time, raise outside capital?
1: What was interesting at the time is that unlike today, where it takes you know, eight to 10 years to get a, um, uh, an exit, because you were investing into the next generation of consumer internet companies, a lot of those were acquired pretty early, like Truvio, like within a year, literally, uh, for 17x um, a return. And therefore, my track record built up extremely quickly. So within three years, I was already, you know, 5x of my capital you know, um, and I had returned this 250K multiple times over in cash, like pure DPI. And as it showed that not only were the companies kind of doing well, but also they were being acquired, I was making money. And, you know, to me at the time we had a a young family, uh, investing was the only source of income. I was doing a bit of consulting gigs uh, on the side to put brand on the table. It was pretty stressful to sort of make a decision to do this full-time or not. And I had given myself about you know 12 to 18 months to figure out whether it was viable. And within 18 months, I had already returned the uh, the cash a couple of times over. And so decided to do that full-time, it was working. And then three years later, 2007, is when I had a few conversations with people who said, hey, you've been doing this for a few years, you're very successful, you've been investing in really successful companies or interesting companies, can you just take our money and invest it alongside? Because it's working. And I didn't really have a a set plan to go and raise multiple funds and build the kind of legacy that um, we have now at Uncork. But I thought, hey, it's really sort of interesting to start as an angel and to raise a fund that will invest like an angel, which is why the, the first fund that we had done Fund two, as we call it, a $15 million fund, was called a super angel fund because it was investing in chunks, you know, very large portfolio, 150K to, I mean, 100K to 250K, not like the kind of concentrated strategy that we have today.
0: When you raised fund two, and let's call it the first fund with outside capital, it was something that, you know, you had built a nice track record with your angel portfolio. You had a number of people that wanted to support you. You had capital around your around the table, presumably from individuals and family offices. But then, when you went to Fund Three, which is much bigger, I think it was fifty five million, that was right at the time the global financial crisis was happening. And I remember having a conversation with you about jumping from that Fund Two to Fund Three, doing it at a time where things are very tough. Where a lot of people were not allocating to venture on the LP side, particularly the institutional side. How difficult was that to navigate not only a jump in fund size, but also do it at a time where things from a macro standpoint were so difficult?
1: Raising fund three was the hardest thing that I had to do. In fund two, it was a bit like things just clicked together so well and so quickly that um, I raised $15 million in, in eight eight-ish weeks during the summer of 2007, right? And it wasn't a thing because no one was out doing that. Uh, and when 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 we announced Fund 2 on stage at TechCrunch 40, the first TechCrunch conference in September of 2007, people were just, you know, uh, kind of mocking me because who would raise a $15 million fund? What is that? What does that mean? Like, who who does that? When I raised Fund 3 in 2010, it was, okay, let's take the key learnings of Fund 2 and essentially build the fund and the firm the way I think we can actually leave a legacy and do the kinds of work that we've been doing for the past 17 years, uh, which is build a team, build infrastructure, build a platform uh, for hundreds of companies to be funded. And I decided to bring my first partner, Charles Hudson, who's now uh, my dear friend, uh, managing partner of uh, Precursor VC. We, as you said, raised a much uh, bigger fund. We wanted to increase the size of the checks that we were writing. And essentially, we changed everything that was defining fund two and made it into fund three. Right, And the thing also is that, the two anchors, a VC firm and a fund of fund that anchored fund two, didn't come back for reasons on their of their own. And the problem is that it felt to LPs I was talking to like a complete restart. Like no, it wasn't like fund two, it was a new thing. And LPs don't like new things at all. They like to invest in the same thing that was successful, you know, in the past. And so it took me two years of efforts to rebuild the syndicate of LPs that have all been backing us ever since. And it was really, really tough. Uh,
0: it was horrible. A lot of moving parts there. Big increase in fund size, You know, coming off a recessionary environment, adding a partner, having some churn in your existing LP base. What were the type of questions that people were primarily asking? Because you look at all those variables, and it almost feels like, brand new firm with some values in in a way of thinking and investing, but a lot of variables changing. How did you find that raise in terms of what people were asking as you made that that jump from fund two to fund three? Well,
1: the key questions were, who's that guy? Uh, Why him? Why are you changing the check size? Why are you changing the strategy? Why are you sort of increasing the fund size so much? What's, what's really interesting, is I mean, my first 100, um, almost 100 deals were done as a solo GP. And for the first few years, LPs hated solo GPs, right? And then I bring Charles, who's, you know, awesome. And I say, so here is my partner. I'm no longer a solo GP. And then one LP says, yeah, but we kind of changed our mind and we kind of preferred when you were a solo GP. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Seriously? Uh, because you introduce the uncertainty of what does it mean for the team to work together. And I had known Charles for over 10 years by the time you know he joined me. But we had never sort of worked together on deals. So it was a bit of an unknown. Essentially, they wanted to understand why the Jeff as a successful super angel model wasn't working for me anymore, and why suddenly I wanted to write half a million dollar checks and get a larger percentages of, of the companies and potentially lead or potentially take board seats, right? Which was like, wait, what? A, a seed investor taking board seats? What does that even mean? And the whole point was, look, if you think about the value of concentration of conviction-based uh, investments, you're gonna get enough of the company that a successful you know, multi-billion dollar outcome will return the fund multiple times. And that was the math, right? So in order for us to achieve that, we needed a larger fund. And when you raise a fund, it's always um, a balance between how much do you think you can raise and how much do you actually sort of need to execute on the strategy. And uh, the trick we used at the time was we wanted to raise a $50 million fund. We said, hey, you know, we'll raise 35 with a 50 hard cap. We ended up hard capping at 55 uh, because we were oversubscribed at, at the end of the journey. The questions were really like "Explain to us why, you know, what you've been doing for six years and has been working really, really well for you is not the thing you're gonna do over again. You're gonna do something completely different and, and no one knows that, Jeff, as a nice guy, has enough value for the entrepreneur to actually get a
0: half-million-dollar allocation. But market demand right now for top managers is there for LPs. And a lot of your counterparts have actually increased fund size, both because of the LP demand, but also because of the evolution of the seed market and seed, seed rounds getting bigger and bigger. You've actually kept your fund sizes relatively consistent i don't think you've raised one over 100 or well over 100 million dollars why did you decide to to keep it when so many other people have you know increased their fund sizes in response to some of the variables that i just mentioned the
1: the macro environment certainly is insane right now in terms of both the number and the quality of the deals that we see which You know, everyone sees the 1,200 sort of micro VC funds, plus the Series A firms, plus everyone's mother who seems to be investing. The challenge for us is, you know, how do we look at the landscape and figure out which deals are the ones that we want to invest in, and how do we convince the entrepreneur that it's worth giving us the largest check or the second largest check? Because that's essentially the name in the game for us. Like, if we can't get 10 percent ish of the companies we invest in is just too small. So, you know, we'll we'll be flexible, we'll take sometimes, you know, eight or 9%, but definitely not like 1% or two, right? That's just not what we do. And so given the market and our portfolio construction uh, being, hey, let's get about 30 companies per fund. So think about fund, fund two was 66, right? We're now looking at 30. Ish companies over three years, right? And we invest uh, about two million bucks per company. You know that yields a hundred million dollar fund, right? Roughly, and it's true that we could raise pretty much anything we want at this point. And we've stayed true to seed, which for us means you know not pre-seed investing in at ideation stage. We invest at product you know launch stage. We've done a bit of pre-seed, but. It's mostly, hey, you have a team with a couple of engineers that has built a product, is about to launch. Let's just do a three-ish million dollar round and we'll take you know half of it. Uh, the challenge we see, uh, especially in the most recent, like essentially since the beginning of the pandemic where everyone has been investing on Zoom like crazy, the size of the rounds and the valuations have just gone absolutely berserk, right? And if I think about my average check size that gets me the the ownership that I need, it's actually above what we kind of modeled for Fund6. And had I known then what I know now, I would probably have raised 125, to be be honest. We don't want to go into Series A sort of financing as a lead, right? So we invest at seed. to Series A, Series B provider, that's the model. So 100-ish is the right uh, sort of size for us, but we'll probably raise a bit more than 100 next time when we, we go out because we just have to, right? It's We don't want to have a portfolio which is too small. We don't want to have a fund which is too big because remember, the expectation as micro VCs is that we outperform, right? So the buggy for us is you know to make everyone Happy, we need to sort of do a five to six X fund sort of minimum, right? Everybody talks about, it hey, you know, three X, whatever. No, it's not true. Like four minimum, five, six people would be happy. And the more you raise, the more you have to return. So 125, 150 is probably comfortable to me because, like, just do the math, right? Six X, uh, 100, $150 million fund is
0: almost a billion dollar return to your LPs. That is a lot of money. And the math does get trickier and trickier. And it creates fun modeling that becomes a little bit more rigid when you're at that because you need to get X amount of ownership and you need to deploy X amount of dollars and you're sitting on board seats and you have limitations on time. The interesting dance navigate though I've always found is the market has evolved so much and you you brought up valuations, the size of rounds. We're also seeing bigger funds come into seed and write bigger checks. So you have a competitive balance that's continued to shift some of your counterparts are increasing their fund size, both to be able to compete effectively against some of the bigger aircraft carrier type of firms. But also what they're doing is they're adding a lot of service people within the firm to help service those portfolio companies across a whole cast of um, you know, things that are necessary. How do you navigate that? Because I, I agree with you. I think that at the end of the day, there is this sweet spot for seed. And from a fund return model, Once you get bigger and bigger, it just becomes tough to get anything over a two or three X. But how do you compete and how are you thinking about building a team and offering those services so that, you know, when you are competing at some of these other folks, that founders and the founders you want to get into are still picking you over others?
1: I think it comes down to track record and and sort of the old school approach of how you invest and help support. And sometimes, you know, kick a little bit the entrepreneurs that you work with, right, you know, to help them uh, achieve their potential. And we just have a great reputation at being very, very, very good seed leads and getting our companies, you know, from seed to series A and getting awesome sort of series A kind of investors like with series B. And eventually, you know, 10 years later, we still advise um, our, our entrepreneurs, as they go through an exit or IPO or a critical sort of juncture for their companies, we're not as uh, involved as we used to be in the early days. But that—that's arc that we've done over and over and over. I mean, uh, we're getting—we're closing in on uh, 250 companies invested over 17 years, and so that's been happening over and over. And I've never sort of lost a deal because someone had a PR team or a marketing team, right? Those are nice-to-haves, we decided not to have those. We have a platform that we manage uh, thanks to our operating team that has a bunch of connections that can make the right introductions to the service providers and so so forth. Um, And it's never been sort of a a key decision point for founders. The founders look at who we've worked with, they talk to those founders, they hear about our kind of support, very hands-on, super-involved, available, you know, 724 and all the value that we've generated for those companies over the years. And that's really what makes the, uh, the decision tilt in our favor.
0: I think brand and reputation and the fact that you've worked with so many successful founders who I, I'm sure would vouch for what you've done for them. One of the things that's plagued a lot of venture firms over the years is generational planning. It's continuing to be viable and durable over multiple decades and multiple time periods. And, you know, if you think about when you started 17 years ago, probably 11 year, 12 years since you brought on, originally it was Charles, now you've brought on folks uh, since then like Stephanie and Andy and the operating team. How have you thought about it internally of creating a brand that lasts multiple generations and decades? What are things that you've seen work when we've seen so many firms actually atrophy when it comes to brand and talent?
1: It's really hard. That that's you know what I spend most of my time on. I think in the early days, you always have the the brand of the firm attached to the brand of the founder. So you know, uh, Uncorky is Jeff's firm, and the first round is uh, Josh's firm. And over time, what happens is that you start seeing a track record being established and built by the rest of the partnership, and you know that you know, a certain type of deal should go to the firm, but also to a very specific partner at the firm, right? And I think that that's where you sort of build both reputation and longevity, where a recent deal that we've uh, won, you know, uh, it's a repeat founder who's worked with me for a long time, but, you know, having, having the choice, he decided to go and work with Andy because it's a SaaS company and Andy and is better at SaaS than I am. And that's absolutely fine right? Uh, you want to sort of make sure that the founders have this flexibility of picking the right partner for themselves in the firm. And we're lucky that we have we have the choice. So it's, you know, putting founders first, making sure that you always do everything you can to um, help them, support them, and, and push them, bring the right resources to the table, your relationships, you know, in the funding world, and essentially continue having great companies that you know, score great serieses and series Bs and and growth rounds. And the market continues to see from, you know, coming from the firm, this stream of great, you know, opportunities. So they actually value the relationship with us.
0: You're 100% right in that in the early days, particularly with solo GPs, or even maybe if it's a dual partnership, that individual personal brands, especially in today's world, overshadow what the firm's brand is. Over time, though, as you evolve and you bring on people, I've always wondered, and and I'm curious in how you think about this, is how you evolve decision-making, going from a solo to adding partners, what does that process look like? And then how do you also ensure that culture evolves so that your own values aren't rigid and that when you bring in those new people, their own views and values help morph and evolve the culture as well?
1: I think you can only attract the best talent and the smallest talent and, and retain it if you sort of give them the ability to get, um, you know, on stage and, and and grow their own sort of brand. And so be ready to put, you know, people sort of forward uh, whenever there is a, an interview in the early days, you know, after the joint sort of put them up for that interview, that podcast, that, you know, that opportunity to, um, to make themselves sort of known and shine and understand that whatever sort of values and, and culture existed in the early days when it was just you and your voice, you know, has to translate into something which is this uh, union of, of voices and, and culture bits and, you know, hopefully bring people who are different. Uh, so the firm is actually uh, perceived as being uh, more interesting because of this set of diverse people and and voices I also think giving people the opportunity to do the good deals right like okay I could I could do this deal but it really sounds promising I source it but hey uh, why won't you run with it? it uh, is something that is important and I think final um, votes there's everyone from the early days um, had, you know, the same voice and the same vote. So as the managing partner, it's not like I have an overriding vote. Uh, everyone has the, the nuclear option to nuke a deal, if ever they don't like it. And one, you know, one person, one vote is the way we did it.
0: We've seen, uh, you know, folks employ different things. Obviously, Benchmark has their model of everybody, you know, gets the, the same type of economics. You know, we interviewed bullpen capital where everything is a team sport in terms of founders getting the full benefit of the entire partnership. I always think about people starting firms and there's a difference between starting a firm and raising a fund. And now that you've done it for 17 years and 12, 13 years with other people, what do you think people underestimate the most of the difficulty of actually running a full-fledged venture firm?
1: Venture is this weird business where you're, part of a team, but you're really running you know, the ball on your companies as an individual. Even though all our um, founders can reach out to any of us and get the support from any of us, it's really you know, you have a primary person that did your deal you're working with, and you get you know, through that person the full benefit of, of the partnership resources, platform, and so on and so forth. And so even though you have a team, which is aligned on a set of values and objectives, you sort of work pretty much as an individual most of your days, and then you gather for partner meetings and things like that, right? And so figuring out how to uh, work around that is kind of interesting. And when I see operators who are used to managing teams and working in large organizations move to venture, that's sort of because it's kind of fun and interesting and but suddenly this sort of team dynamic especially in smaller firms doesn't actually happen in the same way and obviously within the last year it's been even worse because we've all interacted you know on Zoom so it's it's this weird balance between teamwork and individual contributor work that you need to um, understand and, and sort of overcome to make sure that people will feel comfortable sort of doing it.
0: You brought up something which pertains to the last, you know, 12 months plus, which is we're all working from home. It's all Zoom. How do you think that has affected Uncork from a firm perspective in, in ensuring that you're driving the right type of values consistently? You're constantly creating that culture that you want. How have you had to manage and navigate that? And has it impacted it in any way, and are there things structurally that you would recommend other fund managers to think about in what today and what in the future should be a highly remote working environment?
1: I think in the early days of the pandemic, so the, you know, we made the decision to go shelter in place uh, a bit earlier than the the rest of the market, and my concern was, you know, uh, safety of my people, making sure that. They were safe, that didn't uh, feel sort of forced to do anything like going to the office or taking meetings when they have to. And, you know, we've instituted the, um, the monthly sort of uh, team checking to make sure that everybody's okay. And it's like, let's just get on Zoom. Not that we need more Zoom time, but, you know, let's get on Zoom and make sure that, you know, everybody's fine and feel supported if there is anything that is needed in terms of material support, like, um, you know, uh, things for home or turn your home into a home office or whatever. Like we made the resources available. It's, you know, finding the, the cadence of interactions to still uh, maintain that team. Uh, so sort of feeling while well, we're just working from home, you know, from different places and being flexible so people can take the time they need to take care of, you know, family matters or things. I mean, we've always been super flexible, so that that's not new. But essentially, saying, look, this is unprecedented. Take care of yourself, and then, you know, we'll just make it work for uh, for the job. The key thing for us, as as I was sort of telling you, is the fact that we don't have to commute anymore. Gives us more uh, productivity, but also less stress and this whole thing where I don't have to drive to San Francisco at all, actually, you know, I kind of like it, and I will not resume my commute as I was doing because I was going to the office two or three times a week, um, and I will just, uh, you know, stay in either my office in Palo Alto, my home, you know, whatever, and have more time for my founders, and I will just interact with the team, and uh, I will make sure that we find avenues to be together, do things together. You know, either remotely or in person, and we'll cherish those moments because we won't be together that often. And that opens the opportunity for the team to be wherever it wants. Like my assistant Lisa is, uh, is actually in Nevada, right, uh, in Reno, uh, because that's a personal decision that um, that she's made, and that's awesome. That we, you know, offered her that opportunity. And if someone on the team wants to go and live somewhere else, it doesn't matter where they zoom in from, right? uh and candidly it's the same thing for me so certainly this whole industry has demonstrated within like a few weeks of the start of the pandemic like you know remember 2008 like the markets were sort of frozen in terms of new investments for a year year and a half where while uh, firms were doing portfolio triage here it barely lasted a few weeks right and my last meeting in this office here was with a team that I actually ended up investing in. And then, you know, three, four weeks later, there was this really interesting company and I had never spent time, you know, face to face with the founders. And it was like, well, got to start somewhere. We-, we can't wait until the end of the pandemic to make investments and just go for it. And now we've made a dozen investments, you know, without meeting the founders face to face. And we're very comfortable with it. And now that allows us to actually invest in geographies that would otherwise maybe not be kind of interesting to us. So I've just made my first investment in Salt Lake uh, City. Not that I have anything against Utah or Salt Lake, but like there was just no question that I should invest uh, with with this founder, and I'm so excited. And now, as we think about the pre-pandemic map of our investment and the post-pandemic, like it's just all over the place. A, because we've actually invested in places we didn't used to invest, and our people have just been moving all around. It's pretty crazy, right? It's like I start my first call like, "Hey, where are you zooming in from?" Right, and it's kind of funny that oh, I'm actually you know in the mountains for a month because I could, right? Or uh, I'm actually you know at my parents because they are helping us with you know the kids, and it's kind of really interesting.
0: And in today things are, are certainly much more dispersed, much more flat. And I was going to ask you about that. You know, what does that post-pandemic world look like? I think even from a fund manager standpoint, I remember in the, in the past LPs would say, well, you have one partner that's sitting in Chicago, the other is in Silicon Valley. How does this work? I think most of those questions have been alleviated with behavioral models changing so much over the last 12 months. What do you think is, like, if you Zoomed out, no pun intended, because I know we're on Zoom here. What do you think about the future of venture over the next few years? How does the pandemic change it? What do you think are the trends that are going to emerge that we might not be seeing right now that you've observed or at least think are going to happen?
1: Well, I think we've already seen some of those, right? Which is the redistribution of the cards uh, when it comes to where entrepreneurs want to go and build a company. It's no longer, oh, you have to be in San Francisco or you have to be in New York, you know, to get the best talent and you know to get you know funding. Funding is available available everywhere on Zoom, and so you just pick you know the firm that you want, and the actual physical location is just not as as important. The teams um, or individuals will make a decision as to whether they want to go you know fully distributed, in which case you can be anywhere in the U.S. Or, or, for that matter, in the world, or they're going to be sort of hybrid. So like a few geographies where they can gather and they work from home you know, every now and then. And some people will decide that they just want to go back to a good old office because that's the model that they want to um, have. And that's absolutely okay, right? If they can sort of find the talent that they, that they need and they want in a given geography, that's completely fine. So we'll have those three models, but much more sort of flexibility in terms of where you start, where you move, and what people want to do. I think, you know, a lot of people feel, feel felt constrained about the geography, you know, that they had to be part of because of the community that was around it. And I think that that, that barrier has sort of broken down. So you will see, like, you know, it feels uh, if you if you listen to BC Twitter, it feels like you know everybody's moving to Miami, which is not the case. There's a few very loud people who are actually moving to Miami, and they want to be give, give the feeling that uh, everybody's moving there as well. I have a good friend who's actually moved there and found it so boring; they actually sort of moved out within ten months. <clears throat> so we'll see. I have nothing against Miami. Yet. You know, let's let's see what hurricane season sort of gives you. Uh, it's super hot over there, but. The the point is you can be anywhere you want and still build, you know, a world-class company. And I think that that's great because you won't have, just from a social impact perspective, you can really sort of see uh, successful startups having an impact in a bunch of local geographies and really sort of have the communities surrounding them benefit from that, as opposed to all the cash going to being wasted in San Francisco.
0: My own view, I I think... Silicon Valley will continue to be the largest beachhead for startup development and capital. What is interesting, you know, to see, and, and let's see how this plays out, is you have all of these areas that are non-Silicon Valley, non-coastal, whether it be Chicago, Denver, Seattle, Utah. You mentioned Austin, that in the past had a lot of trouble with early stage capital. Like there wasn't a lot of local funders. Late stage capital travels well. Early stage capital in the past hasn't traveled as well as folks like yourself in the past may not have done that deal in Salt Lake at the, at the seed stage. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that part plays out and what this does in terms of amplifying those local regions into becoming you know, full-fledged technology hubs. I, I'd be curious then, more on the venture side, and you've seen and you've tracked this fragmentation of the world and decentralization of venture. Seems like it's continued. And, and I'd make the case that the last 10 years, we've seen more change and in innovation and venture than probably the three or four decades before that. How are you viewing the world today in terms of, you know, you see all these different players that are playing different roles. Is this a good thing in terms of the growth of the number of firms? Are there any pros and cons? And I'd just love to get your general take on, on the industry today. It feels, Kind of
1: out of control right now. Every slice of the market that you look at, right, whether it's pre seed, seed, post seed, you know, series A, series B, growth versus SPACs, you know, IPOs versus direct listings, um, there, as you said, there's a ton of innovation and new products and billions and billions of dollars that flow in because there's been an incredible amount of you know outcomes like just think about like when i started getting a company public and reaching a billion dollar was an unprecedented outcome it was just insane i remember the first time you know we got a uh, billion dollar valuation in the portfolio it was something and now that you have outcomes like uber airbnb uh, coinbase that hit 100 billion dollars the range of of success like the goalpost has really moved in an incredible way right and when lps get tens of billions tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billion dollars sort of distributions like you can't tell them hey you should stop and reduce your exposure to venture because they just love it right and so there is just a race to try and pour more money into venture just because of the crazy returns we've generated, right? And the problem is that there is such a thing as too much money in the system, right? And I would say, like, the thing that I've been looking at on the side, uh, which is the whole sort of SPAC craziness, has just taken the whole ecosystem on fire where, you know, even I am working on SPACing one of my companies, which would, you know, Raise a Series B, but why not raise three hundred million dollars from a SPAC, as opposed to thirty million dollars from a Series B for the same dilution? Why it's very complex. You're taking the company public. You know, probably two or three years before it's ready. But if you can fully fund the company on that basis and 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 the whole process actually sort of lands, it's insane. Like it's just unprecedented. So my concern is. And it's been feeling too good to be true for a bunch of years, right? And when I talk to either my LPs or or my dear friends who've, you know, been on this journey uh, for a bunch of of years uh, with me and the the other firms, like we're just marveling, but also getting concerned that at some point this whole thing is just going to blow. Because how can you sustain that level of Crazy, you know, sort of investments and markups and increases and large series A's and crazy series B's and you know, uh, companies hitting multi tens of billions of dollars, you know, valuations in the in the um, the private markets. And the answer is, well, they actually are generating a lot of revenue, right? Those aren't like the bubble 1.0, sort of companies that went public in, two th- in 98 99 2000, that had zilch, you know, in terms of, of revenue.
0: And I remember that time. I actually started my career in, in 99 and I saw a lot of those companies go public very, very quickly through primarily the boutique investment banks that were underwriting smaller IPOs and a lot of folks in the, uh, the tech sector. The players are, are a lot different. The companies are different. I think we're in a very different point in innovation. And the outcomes have been reimagined. But it's it's hard not to think that when you have so much capital flooding the system, low interest rates, a lot of liquidity coming back, that there isn't going to be this greater fool type of investment world where it's centered around greed. And you have a lot of these things like SPACs. For companies that are really early, in some cases, you know, we saw a company that was a seed stage company and 12 months later SPACed at over a billion dollars, right? So you see these things. I share that concern. I try to disassociate with that with my bullishness on innovation and early stage venture as a whole. But it is going to be interesting to see how let's call it the next two, three, four years play out. I've been wrong. I think I've given up trying to prognosticate what happens in the market. But it is, uh, you know, I would say the uh, the the craziest twelve months I've seen in my twenty years in venture. If you
1: had asked me a year ago what I predict for the you know following year assuming that there's a year of pandemic i would have never expected the kind of incredible sort of year we've had right both in terms of exits in terms of funding in terms of companies we invested in like it's it's been awesome i mean it's been very um, traumatic but it's been awesome like from a from a uh, results standpoint so like you i'm 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 super bullish but um i'm sort of genuinely you know worried that we're just pouring too much money in the system, and we'll see whether SPACs you know, are the thing that trips us over or, or not. I mean, who knows?
0: Who knows? Look, I mean, we've been, uh, in, in many ways, a lot of us um, within the market have been predicting some type of recessionary environment for like eight years, and it hasn't happened. And yes, you, you're correct. In March of 2020, it was very easy to say that we were going to go into a multi-year recession. That obviously hasn't happened. I want to get into the last segment, which is our heat check. And I have three questions for you, rapid fire. The first one is, in all your years of being a VC, what's the best piece of venture advice that you've ever received?
1: Never worry about the exit, just build great companies. Uh, there was a, a piece of advice from a friend at Sequoia that I was given very early in my career. And that stick with me. And, and, I, and I use that so many times you know, uh, in my conversations with founders in terms of how we think about building companies and so on and so forth. And, and every time I see sort of an exit slide about, oh, you're gonna you know, make X percent uh, you know, return and X multiple or whatever when we exit in five years you know, for this valuation or whatever, I'm like, oh.
0: I've always found this. I, and you know, it's, it's simple, but I think it is on point advice especially with the early stage companies, trying to pre- look out and forecast an exit when it's very likely your business model is going to evolve so much, your market's going to evolve, I think is, is really just probably the wrong way to look at things. Now, of course, it is tough though sometimes because you know as you're looking to investors saying, can this return the fund? And, and your mental model in the back of your head might be thinking, can this be you know $500 million company? Can it be a billion dollar company? But it's certainly good advice not to overfocus on that and focus on you know, the entrepreneur and, and what they potentially can do. The thing, though, is like, it's important to
1: back the right team that is building a differentiated product in a market that can sustain a multi-hundred-million-dollar revenue line. Right? That's what you want. That's what we do over and over and over. And, you know, half of the companies we invest in blow up, right? Like they may blow up during the C2 Series A, actually not that many, or they may blow up sort of later, but they don't return you know, anything sort of interesting. The point is you never know which one you know, is gonna work and, and uh, is gonna blow up. And so trying to do some kind of a predictive math around the exit outcome is just
0: ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And going to your point, yeah, you don't know what's gonna work and what's not. You've invested in a ton of really impressive companies that have gone on and done incredible, but invariably you've been doing this a long time. You've missed companies too. and. There's always reasons for it, and there's always something you learn. I'd love to hear what was your biggest investment miss, and what did you what did you ultimately learn from it?
1: So I passed on the three that I mentioned—the hundred billion ones, so Uber, Airbnb, and, and Coinbase. I think Uber is the is the most acute one because that's the one I spent the most time on, and I had the most opportunities to invest in. They pitched me in June two thousand of two thousand ten. Uh, they visited me at the Evenbright office, uh, which was on on Townsend in San Francisco. Not that I clearly remember the meeting. And Travis was there, uh, Saka was there, and the thing that didn't work for me at the time is that Ryan Graves, who's been an incredible sort of uh, operator for the company, was sort of the CEO because Travis didn't want to commit full-time to Uber that was that was a problem for me not that I have anything against ryan but um i just didn't feel that given the complexity of the business uh ryan had what it took to be the the, the leader of the company and had travis and i asked travis i said dude are you going to be the ceo of this company and he said no and so i i decided to pass and then uh they pitched to an angel group at once uh, cesare's house a few uh, weeks later and i was there I was like, it's tempting, but nah. And yeah, I should have, I should have gone for it.
0: it. It sounds like you made a decision based on something to me sounds very reasonable. But is there something that you took out of that miss that you look at and say, you know, I learned from it. I won't make that type of mistake again. Or of course, you're going to make mistakes. What was that, you know, takeaway for you?
1: If you don't believe that the team that is in front of you has what it takes to execute on this incredibly hard, you know, task that is to um, take a company from zero to greatness, then you should invest. And so, yes, I, I screwed up badly, but I made the right decision based on the reason why I decided to pass. I think one of my big mistakes in my early career was to pass on LinkedIn. And the reason why I wasn't one of the um, 13 angels on LinkedIn uh, that invested in LinkedIn is that Reed told me, hey, we agreed with Sequoia that we're not going to try to monetize for a year. We're just going to build the network and we'll raise a series B on the strength of the network. And this is 2004, right? And I'm like, shit, that's never going to work. Like, how do you raise a series B? Like, you already, you're, it was a, $10 million raise, if I recall. How do you raise a series B without any monetization for something that people barely understand the value of? It's never going to work. And so Reed said, Hey, do you want to invest? And I was, ah, you know, whatever. And and my screwed up plan was if Reed asks me again, I will invest. But if he doesn't, then maybe I'll just, you know, sort of hide because I didn't want to, um, you know, not be supportive of Reed. And like the biggest mistake I made was hey, when you have an opportunity to work with someone like Reed Hoffman, just Trust him, right? And so I'm less you know, focused on monetizations and plans or whatever. If I pick the right entrepreneur and I believe that he or she has what it takes to actually deliver, then just go for it.
0: You've actually imparted a, a number of really uh, important pieces of advice. But you know, you see this. You, you see so many new fund managers come to market. You've been through it. What piece of advice would you give to anyone right now that's contemplating starting a new firm?
1: Figure out how to answer the what's unique about you question because that's a question that your LPs or potential LPs are gonna ask you and your prospective founders are gonna ask you. Right? And you know we're lucky to have been around for a long, long time. So we can point to you know the successes we've had, the track record, the founders that we've backed and say, look, they they were in your shoes you know, a bunch of years ago for LPs, it's like, you know, well, this this is what we've done, right? So if you want to be part of it, get in the queue and and see whether there is an allocation available. But it's really hard today to convince, you know, people that you may be the next incredible sort of uh, fund manager. And I think everybody thinks about Sakai and the Insane achievements that is that is made. And I remember when he was asking me advice back in 2008 or nine when he was raising you know lowercase one, and people you know think about hey what 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 did he do to just build one of the most successful you know funds in history.
0: Embedded in the answer is you know figuring out not only where you're unique and have some level of differentiating or remote, but what's authentic to you. I think that's that's a really important part. I, and, you know, what a lot of fund managers have heard of the last decade is you got to be different. But different doesn't mean anything if it doesn't matter and it's not authentic. So I agree with all of that. And this has been a really fun conversation as always, Jeff. Appreciate you uh, you coming on the show and um, being such a great voice for the, uh, the emerging manager industry.
1: Thank you so much for having me. That was super fun. Uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you again soon once we're all vaccinated.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Jeff and Encore Capital, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.